Shabbat Shalom. I'll be reading Isaiah 54, um, 6 through 17. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, with foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of sparkling jewels. And all your walls of precious stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established, Tyranny will be far from you, and you will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith and fans the coals into a flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Inanimate objects have a mind of their own, and so um, this week our furnace went out. It ran away. (laughs) And um, a repairman came over sometime about 11. Wednesday night, and um, he does his business and points out uh, some stupid things that were done all around, and uh, as I'm listening to him, I realize that this fellow is an Iranian, you know, having been lived uh, in the Middle East, you know, you kind of pick accents, and so I asked him, and he of course was very surprised that I would discern that he was an Iranian. And he wanted to know how come I knew that he was from Iran. And I said, well, I'm from roughly, roughly the same general area. (laughs) Uh, And of course he laughed. And um, so we talked and he basically said, you know, there really is absolutely no reason why Jews and Iranians should be at war. I said, you're right. And I also agreed with him that Jews and Iranians had been friends more or less uh, from the 5th century B.C. And um, as I was reflecting on that, what dawned on me is simply the fact that sometimes what we see as facts on the ground don't really match the greater reality. In fact, you can say that the facts on the ground 
are often a lie because they give us a warped and a distorted perspective of what is really happening in God's larger scheme. And uh, that was certainly the case in 1945 after World War II ended. And, um, you know, that here in the United States, towards the end of the war, rumors began to circulate about horrible things that were being done to Jewish people in Europe. And uh, this, of course, was already evident to people in Israel. And then when the war ended, evidence started pouring forth through eyewitnesses, through newsreels, and there were grisly pictures of concentration camps with piles of emaciated corpses and rows of shoes and, and then uh, the survivors themselves who were essentially walking skeletons that were coming out of the camps. You know, it was especially traumatic in Israel because the people in Israel realized that the cream of European Jewry had been decimated during the six years of war. And by the way, you may or may not know that one quarter of a million of those who perished in the Holocaust, in the Shoah, were followers of Yeshua, Jewish followers of Yeshua. And so part of what emerged out of that was a sense of massive disillusionment on the part of the survivors. In fact, if you were at the March of Remembrance, uh, I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Jack Wilner, who was the survivor who came and spoke, and uh, he was delighted to find someone who could palaver in Hebrew with him. And he basically described himself as an atheist, as someone who had lost his faith. And he explained it this way. He said, I lost my faith in the camps because we prayed and prayed and prayed that in the morning we would not wake up. And God did not hear our prayers. There was no answer. And I stopped believing. And yet, as we were talking, I, I gently asked him then how he could explain the fact that he survived all the horrors that he had gone through. And he had absolutely no reason, no explanation for that. I certainly didn't want to <coughs> barge in <coughs> at that moment and talk about the Lord and, and the Lord's mercy and the Lord's protection. But it, it was a real heartache. Uh, <clears throat> for that generation, the sentiment was, Avda tikvatenu, we have lost hope. Um, I saw that, by the way, also when I went to the JCC, there was a, um, a Shoah Holocaust uh, event. And one of the speakers, and the tone was very somber, was complete... Uh, antithesis of what we saw at the March of Remembrance. And one of the speakers, who was a second generation, mentioned the fact that for Jewish, peop uh, Jewish people have one foot in the grave and one foot in the future. And his point simply was that we have gone through so much suffering, so much death, 
that that's part of our reality, and yet somehow we want to be able to <coughs> focus towards the future. And this is something that, that you see throughout Jewish history, this sense of mixture of, of hopelessness and, and some hope. Uh, you see that, for example, in Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones. And the Lord interprets that through Ezekiel for the people who are going to be listening. And he said, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. <clears throat> very, very graphic, very heavy, very depressing kind of language. It implies a couple of things. One is that <clears throat> we have no hope. We are cut off. And, and the cutting off has the sense that we are cut off from God. And the, the rabbis, the consensus among rabbis uh, in the last 60 years has been that the Holocaust, the Shoah, is explained by a basic fact that God hid his face from the nation of Israel. He hid his divine presence. And so for us, who are believers in Yeshua, we look at situations that are sometimes grim. You know, we live in a world that is broken. It doesn't take a nuclear physicist to understand that. And those of us who are committed to standing with Israel and supporting Israel recognize the fact that this one little piece of real estate has so much warfare connected with it that it's unbelievable. You may be aware of the fact that there's been an uptick in a number of uh, terrorist activity uh, in the last couple of months. And so you look at these situations and we sometimes go from one ditch to the other. We sometimes go from one ditch, you know, if, if you're familiar with children's stories, this is Eeyore-like, you know, everything is grim, everything is difficult. That's one ditch because we cannot see anything beyond the struggles, the gloom of the struggles that we're in. That's one ditch. The other ditch is the uh, heavenly-minded and absolutely no earthly good that we basically say, well, there are all kinds of things going on down here. God is in control, and I'm not going to worry and think about the reality down here. It's also a ditch, folks, because God expects us to deal honestly with reality as it is. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That is, by the way, why you find extensive passages in Scripture that are in a form of lament. And it's hard for us to get our arms around because we want the good stuff. We want the feel-good passages. And last Shabbat, we, we saw how Yeshua lamented over Jerusalem. And it wasn't one of these gentle kind of tears. It was a wailing. It was a weeping, loud 
was obvious to everybody and it was, came from deep within him, very much reflecting the heart, the broken heart of God like you see with, with the prophets. He was lamenting the facts of the ground. So, yes, the facts on the ground are often difficult. But to appreciate the fullness of reality as God sees it, we have to recognize the fact that the facts on the ground form only part of reality. And if we exclusively park on the facts on the ground, we have a very perverted sense of reality. And what you find here in Isaiah 54, parts of it are depressing. I mean, there are parts that are absolutely glorious and wonderful, and we quote these verses in the Bible uh, answer books and so on. No weapon formed against you will prosper and so on and so forth. Uh, But you have to look at the entire picture and the picture is not just glorious and sunshine interwoven in this picture that Isaiah is painting for us you have some very very dark colors and we often kind of fast forward through those dark colors because we don't want to deal with them and and because I feel it's absolutely essential for us to understand the word of God in its totality I want us to go through those dark passages not because I want to depress you but because we need to understand the fullness of the word of God if we understand the dark passages then we can appreciate how glorious the restoration that God holds holds out you say amen to that but some very difficult things here verses 1 Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. A desolate woman. And he goes on to speak about desolate city. In those days, for a woman to be barren, to be incapable of bearing children, was a mark of shame and a mark of great disfavor in the eyes of people. Desolation here also refers to Someone who is being put outside and, and who is suffering. But it also involves the emotional, the emotional struggle. The prophet here speaks about someone who is distressed in spirit. So you have both the difficult circumstances and you have the emotional um, result of what takes place in a person's heart because of what they're going through. Verse 6, you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. And then verse 7, for a brief moment I abandoned you. Folks, this is rejection language. And no, let me be absolutely 3,000% emphatically clear I'm not proposing that God has rejected Israel but what scripture is saying here is that there appears a time when God set Israel aside as an expression of judgment and punishment it also speaks in verse 8 
In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. Again, this is referring to the hiding of the divine uh, presence. And part of what you see here is God's boiling over, bubbling over anger due to Israel's long, centuries-long apostasy and idol worship. The Lord reveals himself as being immensely patient, immensely merciful. But he's also just. And after people choose to be rebellious and to be in apostasy over and over and over again, particularly with the nation of Israel, God predicted that he would bring about judgment. You see that all the way back in the Torah. In Deuteronomy 31. On that day I will become angry with them and I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them and on that day they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us and I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Again, the rabbis view that as referring to the Shoah to the Holocaust. And as we talked about last Shabbat, there are no simple answers to what took place during the war years. However, what we do know emphatically, is that God's rejection and hiding his face from Israel was always designed to be temporary, limited, and designed to bring about repentance on the part of the people. You see that in the Torah, you see that in Ezekiel, because God's heart for Israel and for humanity in general is to bring about restoration. God doesn't get a kick out of destroying the wicked. He wants the wicked to come in repentance. And so, yes, you have the passages that speak about God hiding his face from Israel, but you also have the passages that speak about the Lord revealing himself fully to his people. Again, Ezekiel 39 then they will know that I'm the Lord their God, for though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them into their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So whatever is taking place that we see here in Isaiah 54, as far as God Desert, uh, appearing to desert Israel, turning his face from Israel, rejecting Israel, it is short term. And it's designed to bring about repentance and restoration. But nonetheless, it's hard. It's hard. It speaks about the distress in spirit. It speaks about, in, in verse four of this chapter you will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood 
that implies that Israel experienced shame as part of God's judgment. And as you read the prophets, as you read the Torah, what it becomes real clear is that part of God's judgment on the rebels is to cause them shame, to cause them humiliation, not because he's sadistic, but because he wants them to come and be ashamed of themselves and repent and turn to him and receive restoration and healing. And yes, Israel experienced all kinds of shame. Every time the nation went into exile in Babylon and in Rome throughout 2,000 years of persecution in Europe during the Shoah, you know, you may have seen pictures of the Nazi soldiers coming and taking a pair of scissors and cutting off Jewish beards, the beards of Jewish men. Great, great shame and humiliation. And what people don't understand is they see these, they see this language here in Isaiah 54 and elsewhere that speaks about God putting off Israel and they incorrectly interpret that to be a long-standing and an eternal break between the nation of Israel and God. People just don't bother to read the rest of the passage because God's relationship with Israel is unbreakable. Unbreakable. Yes, God predicted that Israel would go astray and apostatize and receive judgment. But he made it very clear that his relationship with Israel is not up for grabs. Here's what the Torah, in, in Leviticus 26, the Lord is saying, I'm sorry to tell you all these awful things will happen because I know your nature. I know the fact that, that you are fickle in terms of following me and then chasing after other gods. I'll have to send you to exile. Yet, in spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. Why does God's relationship with Israel continue? Because he's a faithful God. He's a faithful God. And so part of what happens when people read passages such as Isaiah 54 and they see God hiding his face from Israel, turning away from the nation, they say, well, that's because they rejected Yeshua. This kind of thing does not apply to me. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because the same principles that God employs in his relationship with Israel, he employs with people in general. God's people in general. Isaiah 59 says, your, your sins have hid you from your God. What does that suggest to us? What, does that implies, what that implies to us is that if we choose to be habitually committed to, to committing sin, committing acts that we know are not of God, what do you think will happen to us? God hates sin. And if we persist in pursuing directions that we know are not of God, the Lord will hide himself from us 
not eternally, but he will hide himself from us and withdraw his presence in order to get us to realize where we're going. God hates sin. And if we are in that place like Israel of continual rebellion, God will hide his face from us until we come to a place of humble repentance and restoration. The relationship continues. And this is the amazing intertwining of the glorious light colors with the dark colors in this passage. Verse, 54, uh, verse 5 of chapter 54 here. For your maker is your husband. As we see in, in Ephesians chapter 5, the relationship of, of a husband and wife is one of the most vivid, most intense, most intimate examples, models of what our relationship with God looks like. And that's the language that is being used between God and Israel. The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. I want to park on this word here for a minute. The Hebrew word for Redeemer used here is Goel, which means kinsman redeemer, which in plain English means that our Redeemer, God, has to be a member of our family. Think about that. Get your arms around that. And that's what he's saying to Israel, that he, is, he sees himself as part of Israel's family. And that's something that we see as well in Hebrews chapter 2, where the writer of Hebrews says, Messiah had to become like his brothers in every way. And because of that, he's a merciful high priest so that we can come to him knowing that he understands us. Same kind of dynamics. God is, God's in, in his relationship with man. Mankind is, is eager to be part of us, to be part of our family. Verse 6, the Lord will call you back as if you were deserted. NIV puts it in the future, he will call you back. In Hebrew... It's in the past tense, what has been called the prophetic past tense, which means in the eyes of God, it's already a done deal. He's already accomplished that. He's already, in, in his mind, in his heart, in his reality up here, not facts on the ground, but in his reality up here, this has already happened. He has already brought his people to himself. And yes, the facts on the ground are difficult, but as far as God is concerned, they're just very, very short span of time. For a brief moment, I abandon you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. The Hebrew word for compassion, rachamim, comes from the Hebrew word womb, rechem. What does that tell you? It tells you that God's mercy comes from deep, deep, deep inside. It's not just some kind of a superficial and a fleeting emotion. 
That's how he feels about his people. With great loving kindness, everlasting kindness, I would bring you back. Again, you probably know that the word for loving kindness there is chesed, covenant committed loyal love. Verse 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love, chesed for you, will not be shaken, nor my covenant peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is profound, folks. Because yes, God is forced to act in judgment on his people when they're rebellious and stupid which of course never happens to any one of us here, right? When we go through periods of time when we just kick up our our heels and we say, God, forget it. I'm not going to do this. I want to do my thing. Thank you. And the Lord in His mercy allows us to go that route and at some point brings on His judgment And hopefully we wake up and smell the coffee and realize, you know, there's something wrong going on here. Maybe the Lord is not happy with me. Duh. And so he allows us sometimes to go through difficult circumstances because of our sins. Other times he allows us to go through difficult circumstances because we we need to be refined and purified and cleansed and have some of those rotten branches snipped off. And we go through those difficult times and we say, God, where are you? Have you given up on me? Are, 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 you, uh, are you no longer interested in me? And the lesson we get from Israel over and over and over and over again is that not so much man's sinfulness We know that, but it it is God's incredible and sometimes nonsensical kind of love. It doesn't make sense that God would love to such an extent. Part of the picture that we continue to see is those facts on the ground that are difficult and God doesn't airbrush them. And that's what I love about, about Scripture. Where there's a mess, Scripture doesn't airbrush the mess and say it, it is glorious. It's wonderful. Where there is a mess, the Word of God describes it as a mess. And yet, the Lord calls on us to recognize that the facts on the ground are just a portion of reality. And that if all that we see and understand are the facts on the ground, that we have a perversion of reality. We, in a sense, we are believing a lie. Because God has greater reality. He's committed to restoration. And what you see here. In this chapter and elsewhere in the prophets is God's heart to bring about restoration 
in all kinds of ways. You have a profusion of colors. Restoration color. It's as if Isaiah took a brush and just went shh, shh, shh. Let me just rattle through some of those. He speaks about fruitfulness in verse 1. The sons of the desolate one would be more numerous. There is expansion of living space. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Which, of course, we don't want to do because we base reality on the facts on the ground and we say, God, I'm just getting through. Get me through here and uh, somehow we'll call it good. And the Lord challenges us to take a different pair of glasses. He speaks about honor instead of shame. Verse 4. He speaks about the reaffirmation of the love relationship that seemed kind of frayed and wobbly. He speaks about protection from destruction. No weapon formed against you will prevail. He speaks about rebuilding and restoration of that which was destroyed. Yes, he sees where destruction has taken place, where there's brokenness, but he plans to make it better than new. Verses 11 and 12, O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you. I will build you. Again, I will build you with stones of turquoise. I'm not just going to slap it together with a couple of two-by-fours. I'm going to build you with stones of turquoise. Your foundations with sapphires. Again, this is something we really can't get our arms around because we can't really envision a, uh, a building made of turquoise and uh, built on sapphire and so on and so forth. But you get the picture. What, what the Lord is saying here is I will make you, I will transform you and renew you so that you're better than you were in your new state. This is part of the promise of restoration. And there have been times when Jewish people had glimmers of that. In fact, the Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem that we sang, was written in 1878 in Eastern Europe at a time of great persecution for Jewish people living there. And yet, the poet, instead of saying, our hope is lost because of all the persecution and hatred, he said, Lo avda tikvateinu. Our hope is not lost. He doesn't explicitly, the poet of the Hatikva doesn't explicitly speak about God's restoration. But I believe that certainly is part, from a biblical perspective, it's certainly part of the picture. That God has a plan of transformation for Israel and through Israel for the nations. And we see that. We see that. This is not some kind of a, a thought 
that pops into God's head at one instant, but this is part of his eternal sovereign plans for Israel and for the nations. And part of that has been happening. I don't know if you've heard of a Scottish uh, painter by the name of David Roberts. This fellow traveled through the Middle East in 1839 and he did a number of these beautiful sketches of, of Israel and the Middle East and so on. He did a number of sketches of Jerusalem and uh, it's hard to reconcile the pictures that we see of from, from his reality from what we know of Jerusalem today. In 1839, all you can see were walls and sand dunes and some camels and some nomads. That's all you could see in Jerusalem. Today, Jerusalem is roughly the same size as Denver proper. By the way, it has a light rail. Did you know that? and the expanding suburbs. So the physical reality has happened. Part of the restoration has happened. But spiritually, Israel is predominantly a secular country, as is the case for most of the Jewish population overseas, and particularly in the United States. A growing number of Jewish people have come to consider Judaism as having absolutely no need for God. So for example, the Pesach Haggadah, the Passover Haggadah, describes the celebration as merely that of a national liberation from, from slavery. It has absolutely nothing to do with God in it. But God is at work. God is at work. We see that in the Messianic Jewish movement uh, community here in the United States. We see it in Israel. And this is part of the picture, part of the expectation that we have that God will bring these promises, these glorious promises into fullness. Now I want to finish with Verse 14 here, chapter 54. Just a, a short segment. In righteousness you will be established. And I want to park here for a minute on the Hebrew verb kun, which has a very wide range of meanings, all the way from bringing something into existence, working to see to it that it's maintained, establishing it and guaranteeing it its existence. So that is what God has in mind for the nation of Israel. He's brought it into being. He has worked hard to keep it from being destroyed. He is a process of establishing it and he is guaranteeing its existence. How else would you explain Jewish people being around And God is at work in Israel as he is at work in us. Peter reminds us of the fact that there are times when we go through trials and suffering 
And yes, those are the facts on the ground, folks. But they're bigger facts. Here's what Peter says. 1 Peter 5.10 The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory and Messiah after you have suffered a little, a little while, which can drive a uh, fleet of trucks through that little while. So, will himself restore, equip, perfect, make you strong, firm, steadfast, and established. This was made to a community of believers who are pressed and persecuted. It applies to us who live in a world that has much brokenness. And it applies to us, to you and I, who have a heart for God, who have a heart for His plans for the nation of Israel to be established. Yes, we go through our trials and tribulations. Those are the facts on the ground. But we have larger facts, a greater reality, and that's what we want to park. That's what we want to to wrap our arms around and say, Lord, we're going to trust you for your fuller reality to be established. Would you please stand? I know we've been going for a while, but let's let's just um, be quiet for a moment or so as we prepare to close the service with worship. Lord God, we uh, repent of our unbelief. We repent, Lord God, of all the many times, Lord, that we choose to base our security and our happiness only in what we see in front of us. Lord God, we pray for those eyes of faith for each one of us, those new spectacles through which we can see reality as you see reality. We pray, Lord God, for stout-heartedness and courage, Lord God, to recognize your plans and purposes to recognize what it is that you're doing and Lord to pursue that to press ahead Lord I pray for each one of us Lord you know where we are where we are in our love relationship with you in our ability and willingness to trust you we pray Lord God that your Ruach would stir us to boldness, to trust you, Lord, and to look to you to bring about restoration in our lives individually, in our lives as families, in our life as a corporate body of believers, as a mishpacha, and beyond, Lord God, to see the glorious things that you have in mind for Israel and through Israel, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for who you are. We worship and exalt you, Lord, in the name of Yeshua. Amen.